listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Canadians are really concerned about climate change for the more you know more than ever in, in, than in previous uh, years, and yet they also still support uh, the pipeline project, and which implies or entails the expansion of the tar sands. So how can that be? There's this kind of disconnect between our genuine concern for the environment and global heating, and um, a slight but you know nevertheless real majority support for pipelines like TMX. So I think that has to do with a disconnect between media coverage of energy policy and politics and climate. That's Robert Hackett, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Robert Hackett on Canada, Pipelines, Politics, and the Press. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has a contradictory record when it comes to the climate crisis. On one hand, he declared a national climate emergency. On the other hand, he plucked down more than $4 billion in public money to buy TMX, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which will carry dirty tar sands oil. James Hansen, the renowned U.S. scientist, warns, oil from tar sands makes sense only for a small number of people who are making a lot of money from it. It doesn't make sense for the rest of the people on the planet. We are getting close to the dangerous level of carbon in the atmosphere. And if we add on to that unconventional fossil fuels, such as tar sands oil, which have a tremendous amount of carbon, then, and these are his words, the climate problem becomes unsolvable. The Trans Mountain Pipeline is being resisted by various grassroots groups across Canada. Our guest today is Robert Hackett. He was professor for more than three decades in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. He's co-author of Journalism and Climate Crisis. He's an activist in the community-based struggle against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He spoke at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, in October 2019. And now, Robert Hackett. Uh, first, I want to greet the listeners of Alternative Radio in whatever country you're in, especially anybody suffering from or challenging the fossil fuel corporations that use their political and economic power to block a faster transition to a more sustainable economy. Canada's Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, or TMX, offers a case study of the political resources available to both carbon capital uh, and opposition movements. TMX was originally a mega project of the Texas-based multinational Kinder Morgan, which was founded by two former Enron executives. Remember Enron, the company that collapsed during the fiscal crisis of uh, a decade ago uh, amid a sea of uh, accounting scandals? Originally proposed in 2013, TMX seeks to triple the capacity of existing pipeline infrastructure, bringing tar sands bitumen from Alberta, the heartland of gas and oil in Canada, 
from Edmonton, 1,100 kilometers to the Pacific coast. Much of the route twins the existing route along the Fraser River, but when it gets to metropolitan Vancouver, with about 2 million people, it's a new route through a densely populated and seismically sensitive area, including especially the city of Burnaby, uh, where I happen to live. The publicly stated rationale for this pipeline is to expand oil sands production for export to Asia, providing spin-off benefits of tax revenues and jobs, reducing Canadian dependence on American markets, and increasing the per-barrel price of Alberta's heavy oil or bitumen, which is that uh, tarry stuff that actually is used to surface uh, roads. So it actually uh, isn't crude oil. It's not oil as such. It has to be extracted from the ground using a lot of energy and water. And then it has to be refined before it can be turned into uh, oil that's usable. And in order to transport it, it has to be shipped along pipelines using toxic diluents. In other words, it has to be made to flow using toxic substance. So it's called diluted bitumen or dilbit. So that's the rationale I've just stated for the project, but the real agendas may well be rather different. TMX has become a central wedge issue in Canadian politics. But as the American environmentalist Bill McKibben told a Vancouver meeting in 2018, it's also one of the most significant flashpoints worldwide between the forces of fossil capitalism versus movements for climate justice and a transition away from fossil fuels. There's no way I can tell the whole story, but I'll just start by noting that it has seriously tarnished Justin Trudeau's image as a climate defender, notwithstanding his efforts as Prime Minister to introduce a national carbon tax. Last June, June 18th, 2019, Canada's Liberal government voted to declare a national climate emergency. The very next day, Trudeau announced that his government had, for a second time, approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's virtually certain that Canada cannot both expand tar sands production and meet its Paris Climate Accord commitments, which Trudeau so loudly endorsed in 2015. The latest green light has led to another round of court cases by Indigenous and environmental groups and signs of direct protests in the line of the pipeline as the feds try to proceed full steam ahead with putting shovels in the ground. Indigenous leaders have raised the prospect of a military standoff and even violence like we had in Canada in the Oka crisis of 1990, or more famously perhaps, Standing Rock more recently. I certainly hope it never comes to that kind of showdown, but TMX has been controversial from the start for many reasons. First of all, the lack of consent from affected indigenous communities. It's particularly important that British Columbia, the province where much of the construction of the pipeline is to take place, is unceded territory. Aboriginal rights have never been defined or extinguished by treaty in much of the province, which actually gives them a greater legal power than elsewhere in Canada. Secondly, TMX is associated with the expansion of dirty fuel, sometimes called extreme energy or extreme carbon, for the reasons that I just described, the enormous uh, energy input it takes to produce a barrel of oil out of uh, bitumen uh, and the toxic diluents to make it flow, and also the association of the expansion of the tar sands with climate chaos. Then there's the local environmental risks, not just global heating, but uh, various risks to the metropolitan Vancouver area and the entire west coast of Canada, indeed. We have the increased risk of catastrophic fires because the project, if it does uh, succeed, 
will double the number of oil storage tanks in what we call the tank farm uh, on Burnaby Mountain from 13 to 26. So that increases the risk of a fire becoming, uh, if it starts, becoming much bigger. The Burnaby Fire Department uh, says it has no capacity to respond to a major incident at the Burnaby Tank Farm, and it would leave the 30,000 people who uh, work at Simon Fraser University, as well as thousands of residents nearby, in a very vulnerable uh, situation. There's only one um, escape route. I believe the university's emergency response plan is to hide in our offices and hope for the best. A former Member of Parliament, Sven Robinson, said that that reason alone should have been enough to kill the project. But we're also worried about pipeline ruptures. Um, that already happened, a pipeline ruptured in 2007, spewing oil over a residential neighbourhood. Um, oil tanker spills in Vancouver's harbour or the coast off of BC. And tanker traffic threatening the survival of the southern resident orcas, the killer whales that uh, are iconic in our region. Also, flaws in the regulatory process by the National Energy Board. The NEB is mandated to review energy project proposals and to make recommendations to the elected government. And then finally, there's the weakness of the economic case for investing in expanded pipeline capacity that I'll get to a bit later. In November 2016, Canada's federal government, notwithstanding all these these problems, nevertheless approved TMX, but resistance continued in various forms, including First Nations legal challenges, street protests by environmentalists and residents, political opposition by the left-of-centre provincial government of BC. Uh, In May 2018, Kinder Morgan stunningly abandoned the project, said it had enough and was walking away. And astonishingly, even more surprisingly, what the federal government did was to buy it, bought it outright for $4.5 billion dollars. Estimates suggest that the Fed's overpaid by at least $1 billion, and speculation has run rampant about why Ottawa sweetened the deal for Kinder Morgan to walk away. In August 2018, just months after the Liberals spent those billions bailing out Kinder Morgan, the Federal Court of Appeal quashed the government's approval of the pipeline expansion on grounds that I'll mention later. But nevertheless, the federal government doubled down, exposing the limits of its bright and shiny climate commitments and revealing that when indigenous uh, nations clash with big oil, the government's going to put corporate interests first. Well, despite these dramatic developments, with the federal government effectively bailing out a multinational pipeline company that had decided the risks and liabilities outweighed the potential benefits of that project, it's useful to study the multi-pronged strategies that Kinder Morgan pursued over the past years to push through a pipeline against determined opposition. It's good to know what we're up against if we want a genuine transition to a low-carbon economy. Encouragingly, a recent poll found that over 60% of Canadians would support the policies of a Green New Deal, which would see a freeze on fossil fuel expansion and huge investment in renewable energy, creating thousands of jobs. And interesting, about 800,000 to a million Canadians took to the streets uh, on Climate Strike Friday, September 27th. Climate uh, change has now become one of the top three issues uh, in Canadian uh, federal politics. The ability of opponents, a loose coalition of First Nations, environmental groups and local communities, to delay construction of TMX and ultimately contribute to Kinder Morgan's abandonment of the project has indeed been remarkable. But they nevertheless face an uphill battle given the array of power resources that Kinder Morgan had available. 
And those resources are uh, mapped on a number of dimensions, from structural to tactical. They are embedded in institutions, but also they have the resources to engage in various kinds of tactics uh, through human agents. The scale, from local to provincial and national to global, and the kinds of relationships they have, ranging from alliance to coercion. In the Canadian context, the power resources available to large companies in the oil and gas sector across all of these dimensions remind me of the Pentagon's strategic concept of full-spectrum dominance when they fight wars. They want to dominate every single front. So that has led some Canadian political scientists to suggest that Canada is actually a first-world petrostate. Others use the term oil's deep state to describe the national state and especially the province of Alberta. I personally prefer the concept of petrobloc, which is a little more flexible. It's a term coined by uh, my colleague uh, Bob Neubauer, which he defines as an informal alliance between actors, oil companies, banks that finance them, particular political parties, industry-backed think tanks and advocacy groups, and much of Canada's corporate media. An alliance that disproportionately benefits from the industry's highly inequitable structure. Meanwhile, Canadian workers and taxpayers gain a relatively tiny share of sector revenue while absorbing vast amounts of ecological and economic risk. So I think the concept of Petrobloc resonates with the kind of perspective that the theorist Antonio Gramsci proposed decades ago, that outcomes are not contingent, the game is rigged, uh, but there's a process of, of forming alliances and a process of ongoing struggle or contestation for cultural and political power. But it's not a game that is on a level playing field. If I can quote the late and much-missed Canadian poet Leonard Cohen, everybody knows the dice are loaded, everybody rolls with fingers crossed, that's how it goes, and everybody knows. So I'm going to list here 28 factors that, through our research, we've identified as weapons in the arsenals of companies like Kinder Morgan and their associates in the gas and oil sector, starting with political and economic geography. I'll start with number one. I'm just actually going to list them. The hardwiring of oil into the global economy and the technological and economic challenges of shifting to greener energy and the relative inelasticity of demand for oil, regardless of its price. It doesn't fluctuate much in terms of demand. Two, the Canadian economy's historic dependence on resource extraction for, ex for export to more advanced centres of the global economy. It's at the expense of diversifying our economy and getting off the boom and bust cycles that we see when you rely mainly on uh, resource commodities for export as the mainstay of your economy. Three, the degree of integration between finance and petro-capital in Canada with banks heavily investing in tar sands expansion. Four, the economic vulnerability of Canadian workers, especially in regions that are dependent on single resources. And that gives fossil fuel corporations disproportionate political influence. Five, the regionalization of Canada's economy and Canada's federal political structure, much like Australia or the United States. This gives fossil fuel industry entry points into Canada's political system via provincial governments, especially those like Saskatchewan and Alberta, that are particularly dependent on resource royalty revenues. Six, the geographical immobility 
of oil fields. You can't just pick them up and move somewhere else or ship them out to the global south. This gives fossil fuel corporations an incentive to target the relevant local and regional uh, governments and to focus their resources on changing policy rather than just packing up and leaving. Then we move to fossil capital's institutional power, the political and business connections of fossil fuel uh, corporate executives, and a revolving door of personnel exchange between petro-industry, government bureaucracy, regulatory agencies, and elected politicians. Eight, the particular influence of the oil and gas sector over major institutions, particularly in uh, the province of Alberta, and also Alberta's increased influence in Canada since the 1990s, particularly through the vehicle of the Federal Conservative Party. Nine, the functioning of the National Energy Board as an industry-captured regulator. Back in 2014, when this whole process started, uh, I was one of the relatively few so-called directly affected homeowners who was given intervener status in the NEB's review of the Trans Mountain proposal. It turned out this is a process patently designed to minimize public participation and reach a predetermined approval. And evidence later came to light that the NEB um, and the bureaucrats in, in the federal um, government were indeed under pressure to find ways to approve the project from the get-go. The NEB has repeatedly re-approved the uh, pipeline after court setbacks, judicial setbacks, and it's rubber-stamped Kinder Morgan requests for relief from some of its conditions of construction. In opposition, Justin Trudeau had promised to replace and redo the NEB review process. Then he got elected in 2015 and didn't, indicating, I think, the Petroblock's influence over Canada's politics as well as economy. Factor number 10 is the general support of most of Canada's media corporations in general terms for economic growth and extractivism. It gives a favorable kind of cultural backdrop for this kind of project. Um, number 11, the structure of the oil and gas industry in Canada with a relatively small number of companies and industry associations representing its interests, like the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP. This enables a high degree of political cohesion and relative secrecy or lack of transparency within the industry. Number 12, the f- support, support from and ties with the American fossil lobby, like the American Petroleum Institute, which has political, administrative, regulatory, and scientific resources. Thirteen, when all else fails, uh, the courts, uh, the police, and even the army, which hasn't actually been used yet, although there have been political calls for it. We had the federal court rejecting the city and B.C. government's cases against aspects of TMX on grounds of jurisdiction. We also have the court intervening uh, with an injunction against blockades of Trans Mountain's Burnaby uh, facilities, its tank farm and its marine terminal. Under uh, First Nations leadership, thousands have protested, but hundreds have been arrested in 2014 and 2018. I personally was very proud to stand alongside two uh, uh, members of parliament, uh, including my own MP, who is now the mayor of Vancouver, and the leader of the uh, National Green Party when they submitted to arrest uh, in March 2018. Uh, Number 14, the absence of a Canadian energy policy to provide a guideline for governmental decisions on project proposals, which allows the whole process to be driven by proponents, right? It puts the regulators and the government in simply a reactive position in the absence of a coherent national energy uh, policy. 
15. Alberta's failure to diversify its economy and its actual or perceived dependence on oil and gas revenues, which has actually been very low in recent years. In some years, they've even got more money from um, uh, liquor sales than they've had from oil and gas uh, royalties. So I think there's a failure of um, diversification and policy there. Okay, um, moving on to cultural and ideological factors. More generally, this is factor number 16, automobility. The equation of the automobile with freedom and well-being is entrenched in North American culture as it is elsewhere. And it has to do with suburban sprawl of cities and the underinvestment in public transit. That kind of auto-hegemony, as one writer called it, is a huge boon to the fossil fuel sector. 17. Neoliberalism. Need I say more? The neoliberal mantra of privatization, deregulation, and low taxation has reinforced the economic power of petrocapital and also delegitimized government intervention to offset the environmental damage of greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel production. Uh, and also uh, delegitimized attempts to, sub- to subsidize the shift to lower carbon uh, technologies. Number 18, we have the fusion, the, att- the attempted fusion of the national interest and uh, citizen subjectivity with extractivism. That model, that economic model, it says we have to pull stuff out of the ground and export it as quickly as possible as a basis of, um, of your economy. Um, so in other words, we are encouraged as Canadians, there's a huge propaganda campaign to say, if you're Canadian, you must love energy, you must love gas and oil. And I think that has historical roots in an extractivist economy, but it's consciously reinforced through um, massive propaganda campaigns. Uh, and then finally, moving on to sort of tactical factors, 19th factor we identified is the willingness and ability to undertake lobbying with uh, government officials. This is between the gas and oil sector and and the government. Um, For example, one study showed that um, gas and oil uh, representatives met 2,733 times or communicated with federal government uh, officials, members of parliament and ministers between 2008 and 12, which is about six times times as often uh, as environmental groups interacted with the, the federal government. And in our own province, which is you know ground zero for the TMX uh, pipeline, Kinder Morgan met with senior British Columbia and federal officials 826 times between 2011 and 2016. Factor number 20, resources to provide grants to universities, community groups, and information subsidies to news media and to develop school curriculum. And we saw that they tried, Kinder Morgan tried to... Uh, um, make some token donations to local schools in Burnaby. But uh, local pu- public opinion was, was such that the school board eventually rejected uh, those donations. 21, the capacity to undertake scientific research on climate change, but also, as we've seen now coming to light, to repress public knowledge of that research. That The big oil companies have, been, have known about climate change uh, before it really became, well before it became a, a public issue in the late 1980s. 22, donations to political parties, making those parties more beholden to petro-capital. Uh, and that's happened right in Canada. Individuals from Kinder Morgan made donations individually of thousands of dollars to the governing Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party in, in British Columbia is, would really be called a Conservative Party anywhere else. It has no connection organizationally with the Federal Liberal Party. Uh, Number 23, money to support or even create think tanks 
to act as apparently independent validators of Petro Capital's uh, preferred policy options. 24, the money to undertake their own propaganda campaigns in their own right, quite apart from policy institutes or think tanks, and to support citizen public relations groups like Energy Citizens. And this has been more intensified, I think, since uh, the federal government bought TMX in 2018. Uh, the reach and influence of pro-pipeline campaigns by both government and industry has far surpassed the communication efforts of opponents of the pipeline. Um, 25, the ability to buy off uh, and divide potential opposition, particularly from communities along the route. Kinder Morgan pops up and starts offering money to city councils um, in a city near us. I think they gave reportedly nearly a million dollars for heritage buildings and and road upgrades. Um, And they've contributed or tried to develop relations with various First Nation groups. And some of them, understandably, have signed what what are called benefit agreements which the supporters of the pipeline interpret as endorsement, but that's not necessarily the case, right? If somebody proposes to put a pipeline through your backyard and churn up your garden and says, here, we'll give you $10,000, take it or leave it, what are you going to do? If you take it, does that mean you think it's a good idea? doesn't necessarily mean you support it, but you want to get something out of it, right? Anyway, so that sort of divide and rule tactic is um, certainly employed by Petro Capital to, to further its interests. 26, Canada's oil industry has pursued direct partnerships and what's called sponsored content, a fancy new term for advertorials, with some of the country's leading newspaper chains and the few remaining national magazines. For instance, in 2013, CAP entered into an arrangement with Post Media, Canada's largest newspaper chain, uh, for, for Post Media to produce Uh, advertorials, sort of feature articles that look like regular news, but are really written for uh, the the petroleum industry, even though they're written by post-media staff, newspaper staff. So the topics are directed by CAP and written by post-media. So it's it's a kind of, you know, sponsored content. Um, It's sort of a, what can one call it, a bastardization of journalism. More recently, post-media has been angling for some of the gravy from the Alberta government, the newly elected conservative government uh, in Alberta, uh, which has set up what it calls a war room to do battle with environmentalists and other um, um, opponents of big oil. And uh, Post Media, as a newspaper corporation, is angling for some of the uh, money from that fund. Number 27, local pipeline proponents uh, can benefit from slick, well-funded fossil fuel industry associations. So when they're asked uh, embarrassing questions about environmental uh, impact or how many jobs they'll actually create, they can refer to CAP or to other um, industry associations to deal with the difficult questions. And number 28, beyond industry-specific associations, pipeline proponents have benefited from corporate and bi- general corporate and business associations. Uh, as the TMX debate intensified, we've seen uh, increasing public interventions from BC's corporate lobby like the Business Council of British Columbia, speaking in favor of projects like TMX. So with all that, against that juggernaut, you can, you can wonder, how did local pipeline opponents manage even to delay uh, what we call Goliath, or shall we call it Goliath, uh, and actually chase Kinder Morgan uh, away from the project? How did, they have, how did we manage it all uh, to, to you know, stop or at least delay that juggernaut? 
Well, we can identify eight or nine factors. First of all, and this is really important, leadership from the Indigenous local First Nations who had strong legal teams and powerful court precedents that made their lack of consent a major legal and economic liability for Kinder Morgan. It introduced from the viewpoint of uh, the fossil corporations um, a high degree of uncertainty. BC, as I said, is a largely unceded territory, which gives Indigenous people more legal rights than elsewhere in Canada. Secondly, uh, we do have an independent judiciary, although, as I mentioned, they, there was a court injunction against uh, obstruction of the Kinder Morgan um, um, facilities in Burnaby. The judiciary has also made rulings that delayed the project, and in particular, uh, most dramatically, in August 2018. The Federal Court of Appeal overturned the TMX pipeline approval, citing the NEB's review as so flawed it didn't give the government sufficient information for a valid decision. It also uh, ruled or argued that the federal government had failed in its constitutional duty to consult local First Nations, and the board didn't do an environmental assessment of the implications of more tanker traffic uh, on the orcas. So that led to a delay of about six months until the NEB and then the federal government eventually, of course, reapproved the project. That's one reason I don't think of Canada yet, at least as a petro-state, because we at least do have a degree of um, independent uh, institutions able to uh, check the power of um, big oil and gas. You're listening to Robert Hackett on Canada, Pipelines, Politics and the Press. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Thirdly, there's deep local opposition rooted in communities and bolstered by the active support of key elected municipal leaders, uh, as well as the current NDP-led provincial government, the city of Vancouver, alone spent about $300,000 on legal opposition to the pipeline. A fourth factor in in favor of um, opposition resources included persistent economic doubts, because independent energy economists have pointed to a a number of possible flaws in the argument, the economic argument for building this pipeline. They say that uh, supporters of the pipeline have greatly exaggerated the estimates of supply from Alberta. In other words, they've created a kind of a false image of a bottleneck, you know, that, uh, and that, that they've played on that a lot in the propaganda in the last two years, that uh, there's a huge supply just waiting to get to thirsty markets, but we need to build more pipelines to get it there. They've also, in the view of critics, uh, Kinder Morgan exaggerated the amount of taxes it would pay. It was, after all, founded by two former Enron executives who were brilliant at structuring corporations to avoid uh, paying taxes. They exaggerated the extent to which the project would reduce the uh, discount of Alberta compared to international prices. In other words, the extent to which the project would increase the per-barrel price of Alberta bitumen. Uh, They exaggerated potential Asian demand. They exaggerated the amount Canada is supposedly losing each month by not building the project. They exaggerated the number of permanent jobs. 
And they exaggerated the number of tankers already exporting bitumen, so that they were arguing, well, it's only a sevenfold increase when, in fact, it's more like 15 or 20 times as many tankers um, in terms of actual increase in traffic. And conversely, critics say that the um, Kinder Morgan downplayed the underuse of its existing capacity. It's not as used as efficiently as it could, as well as the emergence uh, of uh, alternative pipelines. And it's significant when Kinder Morgan said it would abandon the project, no private sector corporation stood up to buy it. Um, fifthly, the relative strength of environmental nonprofit organizations or NGOs as well as their previous experience in, in defeating pipelines. Just um, earlier uh, in the decade, uh, a major, two major proposals were defeated in Canada. One, the Energy East going from um, Alberta to, I guess, Montreal and, and points further east. And another one, the Northern Gateway, which would have gone through northern BC uh, to a port uh, in, uh, on the northern coast. Um, so that gave environmental groups confidence and a repertoire of tactics and a network of allies. Six, uh, big oil has overplayed its hand. Um, There is a widespread belief that the NEB uh, lacks legitimacy, that it is indeed a captured regulator, uh, that it's biased towards the oil industry. And indeed, uh, that was demonstrated by an alternative paper called the uh, National Observer, which came up with some internal memoranda from the federal government showing that there was an illegitimate meeting between members of the National Energy Board and lobbyists for the Energy East pipeline. So, And on top of that, the tactics of big oil are insensitive to the changing public opinion and heightening concerns regarding climate change. They basically just don't talk about it. You know, just change the channel. Don't don't think about that. Uh, Seventh, geography. A pipeline can be blocked at any point along its route, right? And then the whole thing has to shut down pretty much, right? I'll say no more about that, except that uh, there is a permitting process. If they don't get permits uh, all the way along the route, um, yeah, th- then theoretically then they can't build the whole, the whole pipeline. But uh, it was none other than Justin Trudeau that said when he was in opposition that governments grant permits, but only communities grant permission. So if communities along the route don't grant permission, it's, it's, you know, the route itself is vulnerable to disruption. Uh, Number eight, a changing media dynamic. Social media has amplified voices that are usually not featured uh, in the legacy press. So uh, um, social media has obviously provided more resources for opposition groups to get out their message and to mobilize um, oppositional events. And related to that, point nine here in terms of uh, oppositional resources, the ecology of local independent media which were especially helpful in debunking the um, dubious economic arguments for the pipeline and giving moral support and a coherent and common narrative for opponents. I think that's especially important. And indeed, a recent study that I co-authored with Philippa Adams and Newswatch Canada, which uh, was based at Simon Fraser University, uh, and uh, the study was conducted for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, or CCPA, it indicates that the promotion of export-oriented oil pipelines doesn't just stop with paid ads or Facebook campaigns. It's embedded in corporate media's regular reporting. So we sampled about 300 articles on Canadian pipeline controversies in both corporate and alternative media. And we found that corporate outlets like the Vancouver Sun or Province 
or the, the national paper, the Globe and Mail, tended to emphasize themes and voices in favor of pipeline construction. To be sure, these papers could hardly ignore protests and dissident messages, but they typically emphasized extractivist themes like job creation, other economic benefits, pipeline safety, the legitimacy of the approval process, like pipelines as being in the public interest, the continued and inevitable need for fossil fuels, and the illegitimacy of opposition. In opinion articles, pipeline advocates constructed an ideologically selective version of reality, often rendering oil corporations and state agencies invisible as political actors. They're dissolved into general categories like resource development, or they're shown as simply reactive to market or political pressures, or simply not mentioned at all. By contrast, pipeline opponents were portrayed as an illegitimate special interest group. The anti-pipeline mayors of Vancouver and Montreal were described as a stumbling block, slinging mud, practicing canny politics, and speaking parochially. Protests were described as well-meaning but ignorant, and consisting of a vast coalition of environmental groups that make demands, which surely is an inversion of real power relations, considering Big Oil's deep pockets and its army of lobbyists. Fortunately, the same CCPA study that we did finds that non-corporate independent daily outlets like, and you can check this for yourself on, on the internet, the taiyi.ca, nationalobserver.com, and rabble.ca, they provided important elements of a counter-narrative to extractivism. They give more attention than do corporate media to pipeline critical themes like the power of big oil threatens democracy. The approval process was flawed. The pipeline itself threatens to accelerate climate change. It brings other local environmental risks, like the ones I've spoken of, tank farm fires and so on. It actually threatens or exports potential Canadian jobs because we're sending out raw bitumen. It has to be refined elsewhere. There have been many proposals to refine the bitumen in, uh, within Canada, even in Alberta, which is um, one reason that the Alberta Federation of Labour, right in the heartland of the gas and oil country, opposed the Kinder Morgan project. And the pipeline, as it's uh, proposed, tramples First Nations' rights. So all those themes are more prevalent in independent alternative media than they were uh, in the corporate press. Alternative media were also more likely to give access to First Nations spokespeople, environmental groups, experts, and protesters. Now, to be sure, there's room for improvement even in the alternative press, because the alternative, even the alternative media did not do much to challenge the paralyzing stereotype that jobs and environmental protection are mutually exclusive. Nor did they give much voice to fossil fuel workers and unions. Uh, I think that's really important, that's kind of crucial, because... Um, not only to offset the pro-business tendencies of a commercial press, but also because the labor movement has generated a potent concept for rebuilding, uh, for building a low-carbon economy, and that is a just transition from fossil fuels, a transition that includes workers' participation in decision-making, job retraining in renewable energy and other relevant sectors, and other measures to minimize economic insecurity in resource communities. So if the media muffles uh, labor's voices, that allows fossil capital to shape public debate by constructing a skewed picture of workers' interests. So if we're talking about 
introducing Libra's voices and exploring just transition options, as well as building the case against extractivism as an economic strategy, that's a pretty big journalistic mission. And I think it's more suited to the culture of alternative than corporate media. And yet, the playing field is far from level. Because compared to corporate media, alternative, alternative media don't have investment capital, news gathering resources, audience reach, corporate alliances, or access to distribution networks that can compare. So I think there's a democratic case for public funding of independent nonprofit journalism. The democratic media reform is actually part of the struggle for a livable planet. But that's a, a broader topic, and I want to return to TMX and what's happening now, and where do we go from here? Well, since May 2018, when the feds uh, basically bought uh, the, the pipeline, TMX has been truly nationalized. Economically, in that Canada's government owns the pipeline and taxpayers subsidize it. Politically, in that after multi-million dollar propaganda campaigns by the Alberta government and industry associations, TMX has become a wedge issue in national politics. And symbolically, in that Justin Trudeau, who was a former drama teacher, continually stuck to the script of presenting TMX as in the national interest. So once that happened, once the government, the federal government, took over the pipeline, the political terrain shifted significantly to the advantage of the Petrobloc, whose advocates articulate their position as defending Canada's national interest. By contrast, Trans Mountain's opposition, um, its strength lay in its West Coast local rootedness in the West Coast of Canada, with regionalist slogans like Defend Our Coast, and also in the legal and moral leadership of specific local First Nations in British Columbia. So this coalition was actually not well positioned to, to do battle on this new national scale terrain. Although the opposition of the BC government to the pipeline has, has been significant, their communications have been muted and restrained compared to the full-scale onslaught of the Alberta government, which spent at least $23 million on TV and social media ads. And the new Alberta United Conservative Party government of Premier Jason Kenney, which was elected in April 2019, has, with much fanfare and hype, set up what it calls a war room to fight opponents of the pipeline, as I mentioned so, the, by contrast, the political forces opposing fossil capitalism in Canada are, for the most part, not coordinated across regions, nor do they have sufficient communications and media capacity to generalize the lessons of their campaign. And the relatively strong independent media that we have in British Columbia uh, have attempted to go national, but even so, at the moment, their strength and readership is still um, disproportionately on the West Coast. And yet, I don't want to end on that note, right? A challenge is emerging on all three fronts, political, economic, and symbolic. Politically, we have um, a Canadian version of the call for a Green New Deal, investment in renewable energy, green jobs, and a phase-out of fossil fuels. And that is resonating across Canada and has indeed influenced federal party platforms, at least of the Green Party and uh, the New Democratic Party. Economically, we have a challenge to the uh, economic rationale of fossil fuel development. There's an emerging national campaign to end subsidies to fossil fuels and divert them to renewable energy, with the potential for the export of both energy and technology, 
you know, estimates range for, to, of, to what extent Canada actually subsidizes the fossil fuel industry from about one and a half billion up to something like $40 billion, depending whether or not you take into account um, the, the costs of um, over-dependence on fossil fuels, uh, including its contribution to, to climate to chaos. And then symbolically, the resistance to um, the fossil fuel economy is challenging the Petrobloc's definition of the national interest as the breakneck ex- export of Canadian resources and refinery jobs at bargain basin- basement uh, royalty rates, accelerating global heating, which is already toasting Canada at twice the rate of the global uh, average. But building that sort of alternative definition of Canada uh, um, depends on building national-scale coalitions between labor, environmentalists, and First Nations, as well as communications media that can counter the inevitable attack from the Petrobloc's massive propaganda machine. The Petrobloc's implicit definition of Canada as an extractivist and virtually a rogue nation that treats the world's atmosphere as a dumping ground is being challenged by an aspirational vision of what Canada could be. That vision celebrates Canada's many progressive achievements, from Medicare to multiculturalism, but it also acknowledges the secret history of colonialist extractivism's violence to a racially stratified workforce, to indigenous peoples, and to the land itself. Instead, we in Canada can build a country more in keeping with the values of democracy, equality, justice, diversity, compassion, and sustainability values that so many Canadians continue to hold as the true measure of who we are and what we do. You said there were voices in social media that don't usually access have access to the media that were heard during the, um, are being heard during the protests against the pipeline. Can you say a bit more about that? I suppose it goes back to the internet. It's not just social media. You know, there's a lot of debate about whether social media in general are actually threatening democracy rather than enhancing it. But I think we do have to give social media um, credit for being a tool for um, organizing campaigns like the one I just mentioned about stopping fossil fuel subsidies. It's mostly uh, what we call NGOs, non-governmental organizations, or in the United States, they would call non-profits that are organizing these. But we've also had movement, movements created almost out of nowhere with, without even organizational uh, backing that come out just individuals who will start something and then it just spreads through social media. A very dramatic example of that was maybe three years ago, um, the Idle No More movement. Has anybody heard of that? It was um, sort of a native or rather aboriginal movement uh, to to women who uh, were just fed up with the way the federal government was disregarding indigenous rights. And uh, they really helped to rekindle indigenous protest. Um, not, not only or even mainly about uh, extractivism and uh, fossil fuels, but around the treatment of the, the failure to address the question of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And it helped create uh, a movement, a, a demand for creating a royal commission to look into that, that very question. So that, there'd be examples of organizing movements that probably wouldn't have been possible uh, before. And then on the other hand, do you see greater polarization through social media that uh, angry voices on both sides uh, are not able to be heard by by the other um, so that you get uh, proponents of extractivist Canadian uh, economy um, shouting down others um, and uh, weakening the grounds for a, a national debate that will, will come up with alternatives? Well, that's the flip side of it. That's the... Uh why some people at the conference we had here in, in um, 
Christchurch at the University of Canterbury um, in uh, September um, 2019 on uh, hate speech and hate media on the uh, on social media uh, has pointed to the, the you know the the factors of intimidation the spreading of hate um, more or less on an organized basis I mean there is an army of trolls right that will defend the extractivist industries and try to intimidate and uh, you know shut down debate for proposing an alternative to it. I should say one point I'd like to add is that um, at the moment, Canadian public opinion is slightly in favour of um, um, the the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Just over half of the Canadian public now supports it, according to a poll done in July 2019. Uh, One-third opposes, and there's about 10% undecided. But 10% undecided is quite low, I think, for a major, for a political issue, which shows that people now have heard of it and they, they're making up their minds. And that's a shift from two years ago, as, as I mentioned, in favor of the petro bloc. I think in large part, partly because of the nationalization of the pipeline, it's easier to make, um, you know, uh, Kinder Morgan as a Texas-based corporation an object of attack rather than the uh, Trudeau government when it has, you know, a third of the support of the Canadian voters. Um, so that's that's one factor, plus the huge propaganda campaign and the very unevenness of the resources in the public debate um, about its economic benefits and the the vulnerability of so many people to the jobs argument that we need, that there's no other perceived alternative in, in parts of the country in our regionalized economy to developing um, resources as a basis for secure employment and, and maintaining communities. So I think all those factors... Uh, all, you know, are, are what are now currently weighing in the balance. And I think uh, we absolutely need a positive alternative if we're to develop and move beyond an extractivist, export-oriented um, and fossil fuel-based um, economy. You mentioned that one of the instrumental factors is a sponsored media. Could you explain a bit more what I, what is the public opinion about it? And, you know, in terms of, I mean, is that something allowed Oh, it's, like in terms of law and, you know, is it something that people don't mind or don't know about or something yeah. they frown upon? That hasn't been a major... What we're talking about is a, a company or a private sponsor paying a newspaper to print on a particular t- uh, subject, a topic. And the understanding is that it will be sympathetic treatment. The actual writing of the piece, as I, under, I understand it, would be done by journalistic staff but I think it would be subject to the approval. I'm not sure if it's totally subject to the approval of the sponsoring organization. It's actually nothing unusual. It goes back decades, right? It used to be called advertorials. And there is in the fine print somewhere, it says this uh, comment was, or this uh, article was sponsored by such and such an individual organization. Um, There's no law against it that that I'm aware of. And it's not a big public issue, right? But I wonder how many people are actually aware of the extent to which, in effect, Canada's biggest newspaper corporation is in bed with with big oil and has a financial incentive to maintain that relationship. And who knows how that affects the rest of their real news coverage? It, it does seem to actually to to you know to moderate or to uh, uh, filter out strong critiques of of big oil. But the who actually sort of is upset about it? It's mainly within the journalistic and, and uh, academic communities where that, and NGO, you know, the civil society organizations working on that uh, the issue of extractivism. 
that have have um, raised concerns about it. I think it's it's not you know it's not a major issue for the public beyond that, but it is a source of concern if you want to genuinely. Democratic and pluralistic debate on these important issues. I think that that would affect the debate of what people know about the pipeline. I feel like that's that would be a key aspect to considering, you know, how much people actually complain or do something about yeah. the proposed. Well, that, that sort of advertorial or sponsored content is only one of many tools that uh, the big oil has with its enormous resources to influence how public debate is presented. Um, probably even more important is their use of social media. In, in terms of uh, building or supporting organizations that seem to represent grassroots voices from the communities, in, in which, you know, you have people showing up at T-shirts that say, uh, we love gas and oil, or, we, you know, I love oil, or, I'm Canadian, with a big Canadian flag, right? So there's a conscious effort to sort of uh, colonize people's subjectivity how they think about themselves, and how, how they think about what it means to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably more important. One of the other interesting, or um, and, as well as unfortunate things about Canada's corporate press coverage um, of political issues, is, is that uh, on the one hand, more and more Canadians are really concerned about climate change, for, for the more, you know, more than ever in, in, than in previous uh, years. And yet, they also still support the pipeline project and which implies or entails the expansion of the tar sands. So how can that be? There's this kind of disconnect between our genuine concern for the environment and global heating and um, slight but you know, nevertheless real majority support for pipelines like TMX. So I think that has to do with a disconnect between media coverage of energy policy and politics and climate. Uh, one study showed that you know, we have wildfires like they have in Australia. They're worse than ever before. The last three of the last four years, we've basically had air quality warnings in Vancouver, which you know used to be seen as you know, this pristine city. Sometimes um, tourists arrived on cruise ships and couldn't see the mountains about five miles away. And that's gotten worse right in the last three or four years. Some uh, days our air quality is worse than Beijing, which is sort of the international poster for bad urban air. Um, but out of about 200 articles written in major newspapers about the wildfires, only 8% mentioned climate change as well. So I think that disconnect is, is very much there in, in our media coverage, that it contributes to you know, a lack of um, public concern about our own energy uh, policies. Bob, thank you. And the last minute, what uh, can others involved in environmental mm-hmm. campaigns in other countries, learn from the TMX pipeline? Uh, The importance of building coalitions, uh, of addressing the jobs and economic argument, I think is absolutely crucial. Um, But also uh, of how you define, I think it's important to connect with communities and with the, uh, if you like, the myths and symbols of your own country. Uh, Connecting with the subjectivity of people in your country and your community. Uh, Building an argument for an alternative economic strategy, and also finding solutions, finding examples of where, it's, where a transition to a low-carbon economy has worked. The media could do a heck of a lot more about that in terms of a solutions-oriented journalism uh, and obviously building important uh, alliances with important um, uh, groups in the population and finding the, the wedge issues, the, uh, finding that is the entrances, the, uh, the entry points to raise and problematize dependence on uh, high-carbon industries. I think, uh, again, those are all important. Okay, thank you. 
You were just listening to Robert Hackett on Canada, Pipelines, Politics, and the Press. He spoke at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, in October 2019. Robert Hackett was professor for more than three decades in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. He's co-author of Journalism and Climate Crisis, and he's an activist in the community-based struggle against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Nick Estes, Winona LaDuke, Noam Chomsky, Dodge Mail, and Ralph Nader. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, PDFs, or written transcripts of today's program, Robert Hackett on Canada, Pipelines, Politics, and the Press, just give us a call at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven. Again that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order on our website alternative radio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Comfortable, settle in, sit back, and contemplate life, space, time, and CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land.